moving forward. Well, uh, you know, I just wanted to, to start with this thought. You know, knowing this song that the kids were going to sing, uh, I think you realize this, but it's so easy for us to get caught up in just how how cute these kids are. There's like cuteness overload, you know, and uh, they're, they're, they're so adorable. And I think we all kind of as adults, we get these like warm and fuzzy feelings as uh, these kids are uh, sharing with us. And rightfully so. They are cute. They are adorable. Uh, they, they are, um, you know, just, just uh, so, you know, awesome as they are sharing with us. But I hope you did not miss the message that they were singing. The, the song begins by saying this, In the darkness, we were waiting, without hope, without light, till hev from heaven you, Jesus, came running, there was mercy in your eyes. To fulfill the law and prophets, to a virgin came the word from a throne of endless glory to a cradle in the dirt. And why did Jesus come, leaving his eternal glory to this cradle in the dirt? He came to proclaim and bring God's kingdom. He came to redeem and restore God's creation. Jesus came through his suffering and his unthinkable resurrection to light a flame in our hearts that will forever burn as God brings us from this life to the next life. This is the story of Christmas. The baby was born to die, and he died that he might rise but that's not the end of the story. The, the baby who was born to die and died to rise rose so that we might rise with him. Amen. And this is what Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians 15. And so I hope that you will lean in today because we are going to see some remarkable, mind-blowing truths that Paul wants to teach us as we learn, listen to this, we are not yet what we will be. We are not yet what we will be. You basically get the main point of the message in the title today, but just to make it super explicit, here is the main point for you. The resurrection of Jesus guarantees we are not yet what we will be. The Bible makes this clear. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, it says this. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And C.S. Lewis, as he was meditating on our future glory selves, the, the resurrected state of believers, he has this wild statement in his sermon, The Weight of Glory, when he says this, It is a serious thing, I hope you'll think about this today, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest most uninteresting person you can talk to, I hope you're not thinking of the person beside you right now, but uh, the, the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Wow. That is what is coming. That is where God is taking us, all of us who believe in Jesus, we are going to experience a glorious resurrection. And this is what we read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning. So I want to give you three truths as we walk through the rest of this chapter about our future glory selves. And the first one is this, we will experience bodily resurrection just like Jesus. 
right? We will experience bodily resurrection just like Jesus. And as we move through verses 12 through 34, we find three supporting arguments that Paul gives when it comes to this fact that we will experience a bodily resurrection just like Jesus. Number one, we see that Paul is saying the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ provides the foundation for our future bodily resurrection. And this is what he says in verses 12 through 19. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we have testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. What we find in verse 12 is that we had people in Corinth who were denying bodily resurrection. And what Paul says is that, listen, to deny the resurrection, specifically the bodily resurrection of believers in Christ, is so serious because it takes a shot at the central message of Christianity, which is what? From beginning to end, we are embodied souls that were made to live with God forever. This is what God's creation is about in Genesis 1 and 2. We see the fall come in chapter 3 when sin enters the world and sin through death, as we're going to see later in the chapter. And it takes the redemption of Jesus to bring us back into this relationship that we were made for that we were designed to enjoy forever. And so Paul is like, he is, he is not going to have this talk that there is no bodily resurrection. And so he spends about 50 verses arguing that, yes, in fact, there is bodily resurrection. And there are major consequences if there is not a bodily resurrection. Number one, he says this, Jesus is dead. I mean, he just comes out and says, like, hey, verse, verse 13, verse 15, verse 16. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then even Jesus is dead. We find that Jesus, which we celebrate at Christmas, that the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, became a human being in the form of a baby taking on flesh. That's why it's called the incarnation. Car, car means flesh. The, the, God takes on flesh to become like us. So Jesus was, yes, fully God, never giving up his divinity, but he's at the same time fully man. Which means that Jesus, as he walked this earth and as he ran uh, with his friends, his lungs got out of breath. It means when Jesus, I don't know if you ever thought of this, but as Jesus like stumped his big toe, he was in a lot of pain because he had a nervous system like us that would talk back to him. And so Paul is saying that, that, that Jesus really lived, he really died, and if the dead do not rise, then he's still dead. And what is worse, think about this, Jesus is a liar. He's a false prophet because he prophesied multiple times that he would, in fact, rise from the dead. So Paul says the first consequence is, hey, Jesus is dead. But not only that, uh, telling the story of Jesus is a waste of time. Look at verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If we delete the resurrection of Jesus from the story of Christianity. I'm just here to tell you today, the whole thing crumbles to the ground. 
There's no hope, no life, no power, no satisfaction in life, no way back to God, no peace in the midst of life's storms. It's all meaningless. And Paul even says in verse 15, look, our preaching is a project in misrepresenting God. Because everything we are saying comes back to the fact that Jesus lived a perfect life, died a cruel death in our place, and yes, rose from the dead so that we might not face death ourselves. But then he says this third consequence. He says, faith in Christ is empty And the human predicament is unresolved. Look at the logic of verse 17. It says this, and if Christ has not been raised, I want you to really lean in on this. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. That means it's empty. It's meaningless. It doesn't count for anything. Your faith is futile. And here's the proof. And you are still in your sins. Here's the logic of verse 17. No resurrection, no defeat of death. No defeat of death, no defeat of sin. No defeat of sin, no salvation. Sometimes we, Pastor John, so, so, so rightly touched on this last week, but, but so often we uh, maximize the cross and we maybe unintentionally minimize the resurrection. And what the, what the Bible does, what the apostles did, what the New Testament does is it maximizes the cross and maximizes the resurrection. Both are essential, essential to our salvation. Yes, Jesus paid the price for our sins on the cross when he took our sin upon himself. But his resurrection proves that there's enough money in the bank for the check to go through. Preach, Pastor Tanner. Wow. Then Paul goes on and he says in verses 18 and 19, he says there's, there's no hope for the future. If, if the people that we love who have gone to the next life before us have died without the hope of the resurrection, then they've died truly with no reason for hope at all. This is what Paul says. He says, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, this is a a, a metaphor for for death, those who have fallen asleep, who have died, have perished. In other words, they they just died. They died without hope of the next life. And Paul says in verse 19, if If we only have hope in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, we're just the most deceived people in the world. We are proclaiming that we know about the greatest hope, but the greatest hope turns out to be the greatest disappointment if, in fact, Jesus is not raised from the dead. So Paul's first supporting argument for this truth that we will experience bodily resurrection just like Jesus is that the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ provides the foundation of our bodily resurrection. But then number two, in verses 20 through 28, he says that the spiritual history of humanity guarantees our future bodily resurrection. Look at verses 20 through 28 with me. Paul goes on, he says this, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he, him, that he is expect, accepted who put all things in subjection under him. 
when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who puts all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. It's important that we understand the imagery that Paul uses in verse 20. He says that Christ is the first fruits of those who are raised from the dead. This was an agricultural uh, metaphor that was practiced in uh, ancient Israel where when they took the first bit of the harvest, they would take that uh, bundle of wheat and they would raise it up to God for two reasons at least. Number one, as a thanksgiving, God, look what you have provided for us again because like us, they needed to eat. So they're saying, God, thank you for your provision, but also not just a thank you, but these first fruits are an indication that there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of bundles of wheat that are coming after these first fruits. It's kind of like a down payment. If you were to go buy a home and you could find a home in Massachusetts for $500,000 and you only had to put 5% down, that would be not bad. You would owe the bank up front $25,000. And why is this? Because the bank wants to know that the other 475 is on the way. And this is what is going on in the resurrection of Christ. Jesus is the first fruits. He is the indication that thousands upon millions are coming after him to be raised just like him. It's hard to believe what Paul is saying here. He's saying that we are going to rise to eternal life just like Jesus as he did. And then he illustrates this truth with the spiritual history of humanity in verses 21 and 2. He says, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. This again is pointing us back to the first uh, two chapters of the Bible and the first three chapters of the Bible where uh, God creates Adam and Adam and Eve. And rather than uh, continuing in their worship of God and their daily obedience to God's commands, they sin and the consequence of sin is death. Spiritual separation from God in this life and eternal separation in the life to come if we don't receive the grace that God wants to give us through the second Adam. Because God would send another man, the true and greater Adam, to be the gift of life through, if, through, for everyone who believes in him. This is what Romans chapter 5 verse 17 says when it says this, For if because of one man's trespass, Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more, listen to this, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. This is the, the spiritual history of humanity packed into two verses that, that we see the whole story in these two men. The first, Adam, who failed God, sinned against God. Death comes through his sin. But God sends the second Adam. Thank you, Jesus, for coming for us as we celebrate this Christmas season so that you, through your righteousness and through your death, we might have life. You say, well, when will this happen, Pastor Tanner? It will happen, this bodily resurrection, through the resurrection of Jesus for us, will happen when he returns. And what we have in verses 23 through 28 is essentially a timeline of the end times, what is coming when Jesus will claim the victory over all of God's enemies. We see event one in verse 23. What is, what is event one? Jesus 
returns. Jesus is coming back. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then what? At his coming, those who belong to Christ. So, so let me explain this real quick because we, we have so many misconceptions, I think, in the church. And it's like, okay, um, when we die, what happens? Do we, just, do we just stay in the ground forever? And there's no existence for us after we're put into the ground and we die? No, there is existence. Because 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So our souls go on to the presence of God to dwell with God forever. But we do not have new bodies until Jesus returns. And then our bodies will be raised and we will have new glorified bodies to dwell with God forever. That's event number two. What is event number three? The end will come when Jesus will destroy all of God's enemies. Look at, look at verses uh, 24 and 5. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, authority, and power. Jesus, it says, must reign. He's reigning right now, by the way. He is the king today. He is reigning until he has put all his enemies under his feet. There is a glorious victory coming that Jesus will bring. And then event four happens when Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father. As verse 28 says, that God may be all in N.T. Wright summarizes this section by saying this. The resurrection of Jesus was the moment when the one true God appointed the man through whom the whole cosmos would be brought back into its proper order. A human being had got it into this mess. A human being would get it out again. So we see how the, the bodily resurrection of Jesus points to it. It, it. it guarantees our future bodily resurrection. Not only that, the spiritual history of humanity from the first Adam to the second and greater Adam, Jesus Christ. It points to our future bodily resurrection. But then finally in verses 29 through 34, Paul says that there's another pointer, another indicator. And that is the sacrifices of followers of Jesus. And this is what Paul writes about beginning in verse 29. Look at this. Otherwise, this is a fun verse, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Paul is giving another reason that everything that he must be saying about Jesus being bodily raised and our bodily resurrection to follow must be true. Because he's saying, look, we aren't out here sacrificing, putting our life on the line every single day, suffering so that other people might be saved if all of this isn't true. And he, he begins in verse 29, and it's like, what does it mean? Why would Paul bring this up about people being baptized on behalf of the dead? And this is a notoriously difficult verse to understand and interpret, but it seems what Paul is doing here, he's not commending a practice that we find nowhere else in the New Testament that, that people would be baptized on behalf of the dead, but it seems that he is pointing out how ridiculous this seems to be a practice that was happening either in the Corinthian church or around the Corinthian church. And he would say, hey, these people who say there's no resurrection of the dead, how silly, how hypocritical is it that they are baptizing people for the dead if there's no resurrection from the dead? It seems like that's why Paul is bringing this up here. But, but as he's 
talking about the sacrifices. He's talking about laying his life down so that more and more people can know the hope of Jesus. He says, listen, if in fact the dead are not raised, then really and truly we can just kind of do whatever we want to do. We can live however we want to live. We can, are you ready for this? We can be as immoral as we want to be. Because if there's no afterlife, if there's no giving an account for our lives and the way that we live it, let's just do whatever. Let's, let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die and it's all over with. But Paul knows better. That's why he says, listen, bad company corrupts good character or ruins good morals. In other words, he's saying, watch who you surround yourself with. Surround yourself with people who have good theology, who are going to remind you that Every moment of every day matters because Jesus, in fact, has risen from the dead. And we need to live like this. We need to live awake, he talks about in verse 34. Because some people have no knowledge of God and this is to your shame. And Paul is very strong here. But what he's implying is this, is that if people don't know about Jesus, it's not their fault. It's our fault. Because we know the good news. Someone, someone was kind enough. They were loving enough. They were caring enough. They were bold enough. Help us, Jesus, to tell us about who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. And so it, it's only right that we, if we've received this richest treasure, that we would freely give what we have freely received. And what a, what a great opportunity this Christmas season. To, to, as people are thinking about spiritual matters and what Christmas is all about, to share the good news with a coworker, to invite a neighbor to come on December 21st to our Christmas celebration or next Sunday on the 18th, to point people to Christ because he is, in fact, who he says he is. And so Paul provides this lengthy argument for how we will experience a bodily resurrection just like Jesus. But then in verses 35 through 57, he says, I love this. He says, our resurrected bodies will be glorious beyond description. Our resurrected bodies will be glorious beyond description. Let's look at verses 35 through 41. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen. And to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. As Paul begins to point us to how our resurrected bodies will be glorious beyond description, he raises, I mean, Paul's always anticipating what people are thinking as he's writing down these truths and like a good communicator, he's anticipating objections and this objection he hears is in a mocking kind of tone. And so he, he anticipates this question that would go something like this, oh, the dead are raised? How will their bones buried deep into the dust be made into a new body, Paul? And so then he goes on and he answers their question very strongly. And we find three amazing truths about our glorious resurrected bodies as he teaches in this section. Number one, we will enjoy the glory of a heavenly body. We will enjoy the glory of a heavenly body. So what Paul's doing here is he's, he's giving a couple of important points. Number one, he says that there is some level of continuity between our earthly body and our heavenly body. 
And he uses uh, the, the example, the illustration of a seed. He's, he says a kernel of grain that you put into the ground and it dies and then it, sh- it sprouts forth to be this, this new stalk of grain. We might more readily think of an oak tree that an acorn falls into the ground, but it doesn't look like that acorn when it burst forth and grows into an oak tree, but both the kernel and the acorn, they carry the DNA of what we are going to later see. And so Paul says that, that there, there is some continuity between our earthly body and our heavenly body, but when our heavenly bodies burst forth into life, they are going to be so much more glorious than our earthly natural bodies. And he draws out this distinction in different ways. He talks about living creatures in verse 39. He says, not all flesh is the same. You have humans, you have animals, you have uh, sea creatures. And then he, he says, hey, if you don't want to talk, you know, uh, living creatures, just, just look up at the sky and you see that, that there is the glory of the moon and the glory of the sun and the glory of stars and not just, you know, the group of stars, but star from star. They all differ in their glory. And he says, just as, as these living creatures and just as these heavenly, uh, you know, uh, beautiful uh, parts of God's creation show a different uh, glory from one from another, he says, this is how it is with our earthly bodies and our heavenly bodies. And he makes this plain in verse 40. Look at verse 40. It's, a, it's the main point that he's making. He says, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly one is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. And so Paul is saying, look, we're, we're going to get a new body. And this is, this is good news for us, amen. It's like, hey, you know, like uh, most of us, I think if, if we were to poll the crowd today, uh, in the room, online, I am thinking that if there was just this one simple question, hey, if there is anything that you would change about your body, what would it be? And, and, and I'm guessing, I'm guessing that um, most of us would have not just one thing, but maybe multiple things. And, and by the way, uh, I'm, I'm learning this now. I'm technically over the hill, well, uh, as they say. And uh, I don't feel like it, but anyway. Uh, but, but, you know, the older we get, I am learning this, the more things that we're like, I mean, I'm going to just true confess. I haven't told Marcy this yet, but uh, we, were, we were hanging out uh, yesterday and, um, you know, with some friends. And like my, my, my back was kind of, you know, itching. So I do this thing, I scratch. Thank God it's doing good right now. But like I'm just like scratching and like I get this pain in my elbow. I'm like, what is going on? I've never felt that before. I kid you not. And it's like, that's not okay, God. Like what's, what's up? Am I... Oh, I probably just injured it, you know, Titus is probably not, I'm, get, I'm not getting old. Uh, this is like Titus probably injured me, whatever. Um, but it's like we're, we're not getting any younger. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says that outwardly we are wasting away, but inwardly we are being renewed day by day. We are going to get a new glorified heavenly body. And you say, well, Pastor Tanner, what will that heavenly body be like? And I'm not here to give you all the details this morning. I certainly cannot do that. But Paul helps us out significantly in the next paragraph in verses 42 to 49. Because he says that we will reflect the glory of the man of heaven. And this gives us significant clues of what our glorified bodies will be like. Look at this. So is it. With the resurrection of the dead, the the different glory from the earthly to the heavenly. Uh, What is sown perishable, look at these distinctions. What is sown perishable, in other words, that will die one day, is raised imperishable. Will never die again. Verse 43, it is sown in dishonor. And we know that oftentimes people die very sad, tragic, and miserable deaths. And maybe Paul doesn't have that in mind at all. Maybe he just has the fact that death is dishonorable because God made us to live forever. But regardless, we're sown in dishonor, but we are what? Raised in glory. Verse 44, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. And what Paul is saying here is that that while we are, have this earthly, fragile existence, one day we will have a spiritual body. It doesn't mean immaterial. It just means that we will be energized by the power of the Holy Spirit as we live forever in our glorified bodies. 
But not only that, he says, I missed in verse 30, 43, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. This is such encouraging news for us. And then Paul draws another comparison between Adam and Jesus, beginning in verse 45. Look at this. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. And then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Merry Christmas. As was the man of dust, so also are those of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Look at verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, the first Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Jesus Christ. I mean, if you don't have verse 49... Yet underlined in your Bible, take out your pen, get your highlighter. Okay, this is amazing, crazy, wild, mind-blowing truth. Just as Jesus was raised as a glorious body to live forever, we are going to bear his image and we are going to gloriously live forever. You said, well, okay, that's... That's kind of nice. I mean, I don't know how excited we are right now about this. I'm not, I see some underlining going on. That's great. Um, he said, well, well, Pastor Tanner, what was his body like? And we don't have all the answers, but we can at least go to Luke chapter 24, and we can learn that Jesus' body was recognizable. It was physical. He said, touch me and see. He ate fish with his disciples. And you may even be thinking back to the story, and you say, well, Pastor Tanner, uh, you know, he, he kind of showed up with his, you know, two friends that were walking to Emmaus, and then he, you know, shared a meal, and he's teaching them from the scriptures, and then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit opens their eyes to see that it's Jesus, and Jesus disappears, and he makes his way back to Jerusalem. Does that mean that we're going to be able to, like, teleport in eternity? And it's wild. I've never really thought about this question, but my answer would be, seems like it. I think so. I mean, even we go to Acts chapter 8 and Philip is, he's, boom, gone. And, and I don't know how all that works. I'm not, like, willing to put that into our statement of faith as a church. But, but the point is this, that we are bound by so many limitations in our earthly existence. But when we receive spiritual, supernatural bodies, they are going to be like the body, the resurrected body of Jesus. But that's not all. Paul goes on and he says that just as Jesus experienced and brought glorious victory over sin and death, so we will experience his glorious victory over sin and death forever. Verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul here 
is helping us see. He begins in verse 15. He says that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. He's simply speaking of our earthly corruptible bodies that they can, we cannot take those with us into everlasting life. You say, well, Pastor Tanner, why is that? I'm, I'm not completely sure, but there seems to be two answers that go together. Number one, they couldn't take that glory. I mean, this is like God is so glorious and what is to come that, that we need a transformation in order to experience the forever glory of God and to reflect that forever glory, which means not only can we not take that glory, but we are not glorious enough in our current existence. It may be why people in the Bible, when they just get the glimpse of who God is in his holiness and his glory, that they fall down as though they are dead. Because God is so glorious. And so Paul is saying, look, flesh and blood won't inherit the kingdom. They, it, flesh and blood won't uh, put on this imperishable body. But he uses two metaphors to explain what will happen when we inherit God's forever, never to die kingdom. The first is sleep. Pastor John touched on this last week. In other words, uh, the, the early Christian used a better metaphor for death than what we often use, which I think Pastor John shared this, uh, a lot of times we'll say, oh, uh, a loved one passed away. And, and a lot of times, why do we say that? It's because death is nasty. Death is evil. And anything that we can do to soften the reality of death, like we don't even want to say, they died. We want to say something that's softer, that's something that feels a little more comforting. They passed away. But where did they pass away to? There's, there's, no, there's not necessarily a lot of hope in they passed away. But for the believer, what we've really done is we've fallen asleep. Because when you fall asleep, what is going to happen in a, in a relatively short period of time? You're going to wake up. That's right. And this is what Paul says, like, for those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they're not going to sleep forever. They are going to awaken to this forever life with God. Jesus used this metaphor in the Gospels in Mark chapter 5 and John chapter 11. And he says, when they awaken, they will all be changed. When Jesus comes back and the trumpet sounds and in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. For those of us who are still alive when Jesus returns, we're going to be changed right then and there. But for those who have fallen asleep, they're going to be raised and they're going to be changed from their perishable bodies into their imperishable bodies. And then the second metaphor he uses in verses 53 and 54 is that of clothing. He says that the perishable and the mortal will put on the imperishable and the immortal. I mean, I don't, I don't know about you, but I, I was hoping that I might get some new clothes for Christmas. Any, anyone have some new clothes on the list? Raise your hand if you'd like just maybe like a new, a new something new. I mean, if not, maybe like you, it's great. I'm, I'm proud. I'm happy for you that all of your clothes are in style. They fit. No holes. No stains. I'm just that must be what's going on for, for those of you that don't want any new clothes. But like for some of us, like, hey, that's like, that's old. That's got all those little balls, whatever you call those balls that get on your sweatshirts and all this. It's like could use something a little fresh, a little more in style, something that fits a little better, you know. And it, this is the, the metaphor that Paul is using. He's saying your, your old body, you, you, don't, you don't need that anymore. You don't even want that anymore. You want what God has planned, what God wants to give you. This new resurrected body. And I love the, the when-then statement of verse 54. Look at this. When the perishable puts on the imperishable. And the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass these sayings. And these sayings are actually, check this out, they are two Old Testament prophecies. One is from Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8, death is swallowed up in victory. And oh, by the way, this is a little hermeneutical uh, key for you, a little interpret, when you interpret the Bible, when you see a verse that's quoted in the Old Testament, go and read the context around it. Because we don't just have this one statement, death is swallowed up in victory, but we have this description of what is to come where there is a renewed city, the eradication of evil, a massive banquet, no more tears. We can wave goodbye to all shame and people will be singing the songs of salvation. 
death is swallowed up. It's gone. And then Paul is not done yet, but he goes to Hosea chapter 13, verse 14, and he starts taunting death. Because God has already taunted death in Hosea chapter 13, verse 14. And he says, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Death, you thought you had won. And the scoreboard was piling up as person after person after person has died in this life. But God has the final word after death and the scoreboard starts changing and it retracts all of these deaths that have moved into life everlasting. So wild. So glorious. And so I hope you have this victorious hope. This victorious hope of a heavenly body, this victorious hope of a, a glorified body that's going to be glorious beyond description. But as we wrap up our time, I have one more truth I want to share with you. Because if you're anything like me, you're like, man, I plan to live a long time, and that's great. I'm glad I have this hope. But it's like I got a lot of living to do between now and then. It's like what does the resurrection mean for me today? And Paul wraps it up just in one verse. And he says, our future resurrection fills us with confidence and meaning today. Look at verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Just a little more than a month ago. I had the privilege of hanging out with about 12 other pastors from the six New England states. A uh, pastor friend in Vermont invited us to this retreat he calls Refresh. It's the second year we've been able to do it. And um, Pastor Chris, uh, who's going to preach for us next summer, it's going to be awesome. Uh, he said, hey, Tanner, will you lead a time of prayer uh, just to, so we can pray for one another uh, as, we, as we hang out? And so I was really praying about, you know, how to lead our time of prayer and, and, and the directions that we should pray in together as, you know, this group of, of, of spiritual leaders in New England. And God just gave me a simple word for the group. Just a word of encouragement to say, by God's grace, you're still here. By God's grace, you're still serving Jesus. And, you, you know, like, this might not be, like, the, the wildest word of encouragement. Like, oh, wow, you're here. That's a great job. You know, it's like, you exist. You're still existing as a spiritual leader. But guess what? That's huge. It's so huge. Few things have grieved me more in the past two and a half years than to see not just church member and church person after church member and church person leave the church, but to see pastor after pastor after leader after leader either drop out or get taken out by their own foolishness. It was a huge word to say, listen, by God's grace, you're still here. Thank God you are still here. The mission is too critical. I thank God that you are still here. We're still here. And, and listen, we can, we can hear that and we can be tempted to this sense of pride. Oh, I'm still here. Oh, yeah, I wouldn't have done that. I, wouldn't have, I didn't give up. But what, the way we should hear it is with humility and prayerfulness and a warning. Because here are the facts. Not one of us in that room, we're there because we're great. Not one of us are still in the race because we're so special. We're still in the race because of the grace of God. We are no better than anyone else. Listen, life can be hard. Ministry can be tough. Living for Jesus can be so exhausting. But what Paul says here in verse 58 is, it is worth it. It's worth it. That's why he says what? Be steadfast. Be immovable. Always abounding in the, just keep going. People are going to try to move you. Circumstances are going to try to move you. The spiritual 
soon to be forever defeated powers of darkness are going to try to move you. Don't be moved. Don't be moved. Stand firm, be steadfast, and always abound. Keep overflowing in the work of the Lord. And here's why. Here's the motivation. Knowing in the Lord. Your work, your labor, it's not empty. It's not meaningless. It's not futile. It's not in vain. This doesn't just apply to pastors. It implies to every, Paul is writing to every follower of Jesus in Corinth. This is news for you. All of your work in the Lord, what you do, is what you do for the Lord. Is why you do what you do for the Lord. Is how you do in the strength that God supplies. Is it in the Lord? Because if it is in the Lord, Paul says, it's worth it. God is using it. It matters for this life and the next one. And so in all of this, all of this, listen, I hope you will understand that the, the hope of our future resurrection, get this picture, the hope of our future resurrection, it pulls life and hope and meaning and strength into our souls today. And in all of this, I hope you will see we are not yet what we will be. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this word. It is so much for us to absorb, God, but we thank you that you have offered us life through Jesus Christ. And God, we pray that these would not be, uh, as you say in Deuteronomy, that, that we wouldn't receive these as empty words, but these would be words that are our very life, Lord. Just like we need physical sp food, God, we need spiritual food, the, the truth of your word and how it uh, energizes us and it keeps us going and it helps us to remain steadfast and immovable, always abounding in your work. And so God, I pray for the people known as Redemption Hill, God. We pray for the churches across Boston and New England, Lord. We pray for your global church all over the world and nations all over the globe, God, that you would keep your church strong, that we would be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work you have given us to do because Jesus is alive and we will reign with him forever. We thank you for these truths, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.